So the Pharisees were a group of Jewish people that uh, had received the, the law and the word of God, the Old Testament, and they'd become very strict, tradition-focused, very caught up in the specifics and the rules uh, of the word of God such that they neglected uh, the love and the intention behind the law. So the Pharisees were this uh, powerful religious group that had sort of risen to uh, power in the area, sort of controlling um, the other Jews that were desiring to be religious and, and, and had this, this kind of control. Jesus came uh, and, and began to disrupt their ministry. And he sort of taught this uh, fulfillment of the law through love and, and sort of started to uh, rock the boat for them. So the Pharisees were at odds with Jesus. He was a threat to their position, to their prestige, to their power. And so in the first six verses here, chapter 14, we see this uh, tension, uh, Jesus gathering to eat with a group of Pharisees, um, and, and we'll see what happens here. Luke 14, starting in verse 1. One Sabbath, so we'll stop there, Sabbath being the, the special day that the, the, the Jews had been, the, in the law of God had said, this day is for rest. So they took that to extremes and they, they weren't they didn't allow any sort of work even even drawing lines and the dirt was considered plowing right no work allowed on the sabbath so on the sabbath he went to eat at the house of one of the leading pharisees and they were watching him closely now we know from other parts of scripture they often watch jesus closely to see what sort of things he might do that they could say ah he broke the law so that they could uh, discredit him Verse 2, there in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid or had dropsy, some of your translations might say. In response, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees. Now, we don't hear um, anything, no questions were given, but it says that Jesus responded. Some versions will say Jesus replied to them. Knowing their intentions, knowing what they were doing by, by presenting the scenario. And he says, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent because they would have considered this a work. He took the man and healed him and sent him away. And to them he said, which of you whose son or ox falls into a well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? To this they could find no answer. So it seems they set up this situation to discredit Jesus and he asks them a question and they realize the answer, of course I would pull a, a son or an ox out of a well. And they realize now to, to voice that would be hypocrisy. To accuse Jesus of doing something that they know they would do would be hypocrisy. So now he tells a parable, verse 7. He addresses the host, uh, or rather those invited first. Um, those invited to this banquet. Verse 7. He told a parable to those who were invited. Now, if you've been here the past few weeks, you've heard probably a few different ideas and definitions of what a parable is. Um, the one I will offer is simply that it's an illustration of a spiritual or moral truth. A story told to communicate an idea. So he tells a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they would choose the best places for themselves to sit. Verse 8, When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't recline at the best place, because a more distinguished person than you may have been invited by your host. 
The one who invited both of you may come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in humiliation, you will proceed to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and recline in the lowest place. So that when one who in, the one who invited you comes, he will say to you, friend, move up higher. You will then be honored in the presence of all other guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus sees this gathering and sees everyone sort of vying for a position, right? They want to sit in the best spot and be noticed and have the most uh, attention given them. And he says, you're putting yourself at risk to be humiliated if you do that. Take the low spot, take the humble position, and you may be exalted. And then he turns and addresses the host. Verse 12, he also said to the one who had invited him, when you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. Now, that doesn't mean that we're forbidden from doing such a thing. But what he's addressing here is the idea that the Pharisees sort of had these little click-inclusive parties where they would invite one another and, and sort of puff each other up and, and repay one another with dinners and parties and celebrations. And so he's, Jesus says in verse 13, On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So we get that context to sort of set this picture of Jesus in a, in a group of Pharisees who sort of, um, he was a teacher as well, so they sort of uh, are willing to associate with him, but they have devious motives, right? They're trying to catch him in these lies, and he is just time after time taking these opportunities to convict them and, and, and draw attention to their own hypocrisy and their own pride. So, I picture the scene as very tense, right? Jesus is invited. He breaks the law, points out their hypocrisy. He calls out all the guests. He calls out the host. And now there's a moment. And that gets us into our passage. Starting in verse 15. And just before we look at that, I want to give us a preview of the themes we're going to try and look at today. So rather than just save this till the very end, I want us to look at it now so we can think about it as we read. So the four things I want to consider are uh, to all of us not to treat Jesus cheaply. Now, for those who have placed faith in Jesus as their savior from their sins, this applies to us, right? To, to be a Christian uh, and now to then go about our life and, and not be changed and not be uh, seeking to serve and honor and, and worship Jesus is indicates a misunderstanding of the importance and the value of who he is in our lives. But to those who have not placed their faith in the Lord Jesus, right? For those who, who, who have not come to him uh, believing in his death on the cross, treating Jesus cheaply is to, to hear of him and have no response, right? To, to uh, we heard it mentioned earlier, right? Show up at church real quick, pay your dues, be on your way, not actually seeking out the Lord Jesus, to, to make excuse to not be interested in Him. We want to look at the idea of enjoying gifts in Christ. So what happens, and we'll see this in the story, people take good things that God has given and they use those things as excuses not to turn to God. Right? The Bible says every good gift is from God. Right? The, the things that we enjoy 
in our, in our flesh in this world, um, if they're used within the confines of the way God designed them, they are good things. So we have much to enjoy. Uh, believers and those who have not placed faith in Christ. We ought to enjoy the things that God has given us, but only in Christ. And we'll look what that means later. Now, to study Christ's methods, asterisk. So, asterisk. Uh, this does not apply to everyone. This applies only to those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I mean by that is, is what we see here is situations where Jesus observes a setting and he sees a lesson and he takes that opportunity to teach, right? If you haven't put your faith in Christ Jesus, you have no reason to do that, right? You're not supposed to be teaching the word of God. Why would you? That makes no sense for you. But for those who have come to the Lord Jesus Christ, notice that Christ over and over, he sees this opportunity to point out hypocrisy. And then he sees this opportunity where people are taking seats they ought not to take. And he teaches a lesson. And then he sees the host and who he has invited and he teaches a lesson. And he continues to do that. So always uh, be looking for those natural opportunities, right? Uh, much more, um, um, I won't say successful, but a lower barrier, right, than knocking on the door, which is a, a, a viable method that has borne fruit. Um, but a, a softer entry, right, is when we see opportunities that people present and we teach and we point things out in those situations, as we see Christ doing. And finally, don't die with excuses. Excuses is a big theme of what we're looking at today. Now, uh, if we've put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, um, we are sealed permanently with salvation. We will spend eternity with the Lord Jesus. Uh, we could be, make some excuses and not serve him as well as we ought to. Um, but the asterisk here is for those who have not put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we all die and stand before God and our, 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 suppose we were asked, why should you be led into heaven? Right? You don't want to face that question, having made excuses your whole life not to come to Christ, to deny him and not to come to the Lord. So keeping these four things in mind, we'll start in verse one. Chapter 14. Jesus has created this tension. He's called everyone out. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God is blessed. So, there's a few possibilities. I picture this as sort of this awkward tension and then sort of one voice from the back blurts out, Blessed is the one who eats bread in the kingdom of God. Kind of back in the crowd, breaking the silence. So this could be an enthusiastic ignorance, I would call it. Um, sort of, I hear everything you just said, but I miss not really understanding the point and not seeing the, the urgency and the application to themselves. And that's giving this person the benefit of the doubt. It may well have been a pious hypocrisy, right? Hearing these things and thinking, oh, those things are so true, I'm glad they don't apply to me, right? Which is something we see throughout the scripture Pharisees often did. Or perhaps even that he misunderstood. He had poor theology. He didn't understand what it meant uh, uh, to, to be 
um, repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. He didn't understand what the kingdom of God was. A lot of the Pharisees had this idea that the kingdom of God was earthly riches and wealth and, and prestige given on earth to those who kept the law most closely. And Jesus is going to hear this man cry out with whatever reason he cried out, and he's going to respond. He's going to answer this. Again, taking opportunities that were given to teach. We'll skip this for now. Verse 16. So then he told them, or as many translations will say, he replied. A man was giving a large banquet or supper and invited many. So for the understanding of this parable, the man giving this dinner, right? Uh, A a man gave a large banquet. We can understand this man as God, okay? And why do we say that? What is he offering? This banquet, this supper, at a minimum, is the, the provision of salvations offered for people, right? God making a way... To, to enter into restored relationship with Him, as we'll see through the death of His Son, Jesus, offers this to all people. But who was invited first? This was the religious Jews, right? The first people to receive the revelation from God, that Old Testament given to the Jews, where, where God would point toward the future and explain a system of restoration that would be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. So a, a man gave a large banquet and invited many, right? A, a, an earthly story communicating this truth that Jesus wanted to explain. At the time of the banquet, he sent his slave to tell those who were invited, come, because everything is now ready. So, common even today, um, based on the things that I've read, in, in the Middle East, um, an invitation would be sent out to a banquet or a supper, and time would pass, days, weeks, months, and when the dinner was ready, people would be told, you've gotten the invitation, maybe you've already RSVP'd, sort of like a wedding invitation or a baby shower, right? And then... Uh, when everything was ready, the servants would go back out and say, all right, the, the supper is now ready. The Old Testament of our scripture is the invitation, the original invitation that was sent out to the Jews, right? We, we, we can look at a few passages. We won't go over too many. There are a vast amount of them. But invitations, things that point toward a, a coming salvation, a coming uh, supper, a banquet. You know, in uh, Revelation 19, there's something called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it says that those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb are fortunate, right? The, the pinnacle of our salvation uh, is spending eternity with Christ. Uh, when it says the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? The, uh, the Jewish people had this system given to them by God that when they sinned, they could sacrifice an animal instead of bearing the sin of their, uh, the punishment of their sin. Uh, the blood of that animal would make, um, uh, w- would cover their sin or, or would, uh, replace the dues that they had to pay. So when we hear this idea 
the marriage feast or the marriage supper of the Lamb. Who is the Lamb in that context? It is the Lord Jesus having died on the cross for the sins of all. So that this sacrificial system of animals dying constantly could be put away and we could instead, for our sins and our guilt, put faith in the Lord Jesus for being the sacrificial lamb. And, and those who've put that faith get to experience this uh, feast, this supper of the lamb. So uh, at a minimum, this invitation to supper is salvation, um, perhaps even as specifically as a reference to this marriage supper of the Lamb. But throughout history, thousands of years, God would send messages and, and prophets and information pointing toward this supper. A few of them here. The prophet Micah would write, One will come to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity. Right? So again, this idea that God created mankind. He breathed life into mankind. He gave him, um, uh, it is a set of rules, but it's a set of rules so that mankind might thrive, right? It's not rules and restrictions just for the sake of rules and restrictions. It's so that mankind might thrive. If you abide by my laws and my rules, you will prosper and you will be successful. He gives mankind these rules. We break them. This happened from the very beginning. Adam and Eve breaking God's law. And so God has given them life, given all of us life and breath. We sin against God and we forfeit that life and that breath. We forfeit our life. Thank God he provided a system through sacrifice that we could recognize, yes, we sinned and we, we, we want to, to shed blood, right? The Bible says the life of the flesh is in the blood. So thank God that there was a system where everyone didn't have to immediately die whenever they sinned. Physically. But the blood of an animal can never truly remove and take away the sins of a human. But every human has sinned. So there was no human blood that could pay for the sins of a human until God became a human. So when Jesus came in the flesh, human blood necessary for the payment of human sins perfect, sinless human blood. This is the Lord Jesus coming. So what does that have to relate to this passage in Micah 5 too? Uh, a ruler will come over Israel. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity. Who fits that bill? One person, God in Jesus Christ. Pointing forward to the future when this provision of salvation would be made. Isaiah 53, 5. A little more information about this one who would come. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. The next verse, the, uh, the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. This language, very similar to the sacrificial system that was used on animals, now being applied to one who would come with an origin from eternity, that punishment would be put on him for the sins of the people. So for thousands of years, these prophets would point forward to an event. And even in our New Testament, in the book of John, John would see Jesus and say, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
thousands of years leading up to this moment. John uh, getting to be the forerunner, that prophet that finally gets to say, there he is. Not here he comes, but there he is. He's, he's right here. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by shedding his perfect blood, acting uh, like the Lamb from the sacrificial system, but now a perfect sinless human. There he is to take away the sins of us all of the world. So the invitation has been out. And now Jesus, the servant Jesus, comes to say that all things are ready. Jesus, Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Right? The invitation has been out and now Jesus comes and says all things are ready. They're going to be finished and accomplished with his death and his resurrection on the cross. One of the most well-known verses, right? God loved the world so much that He sent His Son, Jesus, into the world, right? So that believing in Him, instead of perishing and dying in our sins, we might have everlasting life. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 is, is, Come to Me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The invitation of our Scriptures is now patiently waiting on the window to attend this feast, to, to receive those provisions for salvation is open. Right. The the invitation of God here uh, written thousands of years ago and uh, then more still thousands of years ago, but more recently in the New Testament with Jesus coming and those writing about him. The invitation is patiently waiting for each of us, especially for those who have not placed faith in Christ to come and receive that salvation. So the invitation's out. That this man has made this banquet. He sent out the invitation. He sends his servant to say, come, everything is ready. How do people respond? You know, they've already gotten the invitation. Generally, at that point, they've already said, yes, I'd like to be there. But now when the time comes, verse 18, but without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. I ask you to excuse me. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. I ask you to excuse me. So why do people make excuses? Why did these people make an excuse? You know, when there's something that we really want to do, our excuses can melt away into thin air, right? Thinking of maybe traveling, right? This is a very simple one. We often can't go somewhere. Why can't we travel? Well, we work, right? Well, until we take off of work, right? Uh, 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 We can't travel. Oh, yeah, it's I got the, the kids and the wife. Well, until we Bring them with us, right? So these things that, that may be good, valid things, having a job, having a family, I can't make it because of these things until, oh, I do want to go to that trip. Here, I'll take off of work and I'll bring my family, right? There's lots of excuses, but when we actually want to attend something or want to do something, those excuses disappear. And these were just terrible excuses anyway. When I first read them, they seemed more valid to me. But as I studied and looked into it a little more, um, the first bought a field and he says, I must go out and see it. 
So he bought a field, a farm, without looking at it. The guy that wants to go uh, test his oxen. I bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to try them out. So he bought five sets of oxen without seeing if they were any good. He didn't test them. And they're being invited to supper, to a dinner, to an evening of festivities. So he, instead of supper, he's going to skip eating at night to go look at his farm. Skip eating at night to go test his oxen. They didn't have floodlights, right? So it must have been a large moon for them to go out and test the oxen and look at the fields. And he already bought the field. He already bought the oxen. They'll be there the next day. They're not going anywhere. But they offer these excuses up and they say, oh, please. The first one says, "Um, I ask you to excuse me. The second one says, I ask you to excuse me. Some versions would say, I pray, have me excused. And now verse 20. Another said, I just got married and I'm therefore unable to come or I have a wife. Men don't snicker. He doesn't even ask to be excused. He thinks this is such a good excuse. I'm not even going to say, oh, I pray having excuses. I can't come. I'm married. Or presumably I just got married, right? The, the Old Testament law did provide that if someone were freshly married, they could be exempt from military service for a while. So he's using a military service exemption to not go to a dinner. And perhaps this might be the worst excuse of all um, because he could just bring his wife to dinner. But instead of br- being invited to this great uh, fellowship, this massive feast, uh, we'll see the size of it in a moment. Um, and in this time, these weren't, um, when my wife and I host, we, you know, we have to count our chairs sometime. Okay, we have, you know, we can fit eight, we can fit ten if we pull up the card table, things like that, right? In this day and age, the feast was enormous, right? Massive feasts. So yeah, bring your wife along. Great, I'm glad you're married. Bring her along. And so none of these things, these three excuses that we've seen here, uh, buying a field, buying a yoke of oxen, and being married, none of those are bad things. They're all excellent things. But let me read a quote, a paraphrase, from uh, one of the commentators that I was studying. He says, How many men and women are there listening now, of whom it is true, that they are so busy with their daily occupations that they imagine that they have no time to seek Christ. Their hearts are so ensnared with loves that belong to the earth, beautiful and potentially sacred and elevating as these are, that they will not turn themselves to the one eternal lover of their souls." Lay these thoughts on your own hearts and ask ask yourselves, is it I? So the sorts of excuses that have been holding uh, maybe believers back from service um, or, or, or deepening a relationship with Christ, but most importantly, those who have not accepted Christ because of, uh, I'll do it later, I'm, I'm busy with this, I, I have this job or I have this wife or this girlfriend or this habit that I'm not yet ready to give up. 
Are, are things getting in the way that seem like an excuse? When you stand before God, will they be a valid excuse? The answer is no. Just to make myself sound a little smarter, here's a Latin phrase. Paramus licitus. Unless you speak Latin and I just butchered it and now I don't sound smart. Paramus licitus. We perish by what is lawful. Things which are lawful and innocent and good are rendered criminal and destructive when they are abused. So again, things that are given as good gifts from God are employment. Money. Money's not a bad thing. The love and desire and lust for money is. Money's not a bad thing. There's instructions in the Bible for rich Christians. Our employment, money, the things that we have, maybe even more obscure things that we don't think about. Our age is a gift, right? Young people have youth. Um, older people tend to have wisdom and wealth. Uh, maybe not always wealth, but generally, uh, on average, the older you are, the better off you are than a younger person. So, uh, um, but maybe we take those things and we take advantage of them and we abuse them and we, we use them in a way that's prideful and makes us feel self-sufficient and that we don't need the Lord. All good things come from the Lord and they ought to be enjoyed in Him and in the confines that He designed them to be. I love this example. I use it too often and I'll make it really, really short. My fish example. I don't know how many of you have sat through my fish example before. I'll do it real fast. Fish designed to live in the water. The water is confined, right? The fish may want to live out of the water, but it's just not good for him to live out of the water. He may not want to be there. I don't like these rules and all this restraints that you put on me. Well, you're in the water because it's good for you. You're made to be in the water. The law of God, right? We were designed to live in the law of God. And we may be like, oh, I don't want to live in the law of God. It's better for you. That's how humans were designed to live in the law of God, to live in Christ. So these gifts that he has given us, sometimes people think that they are constraints and restrictions, but they are where we thrive. They are where humanity was designed to live. Matthew thirteen forty four. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. And in his joy, he goes and sells everything that he has and buys that field. This verse jumped out to me thinking about this man who wouldn't come to this invitation that he was given, this supper. He refused it because he bought a field. So my mind was drawn to this verse that when we discover and when we get hold of what it is that Christ is offering us, the free salvation that Excuses ought to melt away when we grasp the gravity of what it is that God is offering us. Salvation from sins. The, the freedom and ability to stand before God and say, there is no reason you should let me into heaven other than the fact that I've placed my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God given to take away my sins. Verse 21. So the slave came back and reported these things to his master. And in anger, the master of the house told his slave, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city. Bring in here the poor, maimed, blind, and lame. Master, the slave said, What you ordered has been done, and there's still room. So this is a big feast. 
The slaves, the servants go back out. They gather as many people as they can find from the streets and the alleys. Um, at least in, in, in our story and, and the message being given to this group of Pharisees here, this indicates those outside of their group, right? Outside of the religious circle. If you reject the, the invitation, then it's going to go out to everyone. Quite possibly, this, this reference to the Gentiles as well. Gentile meaning non-Jew, right? So, if this verse specifically is not a reference to the Gentiles, wait, we've got one more verse. The Gentiles are absolutely everyone who's outside of the Jews, right? The, the religious Jews were given the, the word of God, and if they reject it, okay, I'll give it to all the Jews and, and all the people of the world. So he goes out and he invites everyone from the streets and alleys, and there's still room. Thank God there is still room to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's not closed. Not yet. Verse 23. So the master told the slave, go out into the highways and the lanes, right? Beyond the streets and the alleys and, and make them come in. Compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. So absolutely now, Gentiles are included. The whole world is now offered invitation to this supper. It says Gentiles. Now what's interesting, the other interesting part of this verse is the idea of compelling. It says make them come in, compel them, right? These people, uh, the first group invited, the the pious, the religious, um, good theological word, the hoity-toity, Rejected. No, I don't want to come to this supper. And now they're out inviting people from outside of, it seems, even the city. These, the, the poor, the maim, the blame, the, the blame, the lame, the blind. And they must be compelled, right? They, they, they may well have said, we're dirty. We don't deserve to be there. I don't know why this, why would we be invited? Sounds like a scam, right? They had to be compelled to come. Very different response. Rather than making, um, excuses of, no, I have these things to do. I'm not worthy to be there. Perhaps. Not written in the word, but perhaps. Now, were these servants out beating and threatening people to come? We don't see that. I'm pretty confident saying I doubt it. They were being compelled to make necessary is the idea in the Greek, in the original language. Not with beatings or punishments, for a person will do a thing or die by their will, right? We can't change anyone's will. That's not our job. The Spirit of God can change the will of men. When men uh, begin to exchange uh, punishments and pains for speech and conduct, only then can we prevail upon the hearts of men. So, again, just a, a, a little encouragement to those of us who are in faith in Christ, how we speak to other people, Right? Um, it shouldn't be, uh, I hope it's not very often. We, we can warn them, but we ought not to threaten them or, or forcibly coerce them, right? It ought to be by the nature of how we live and the way that we speak and the things that we do that we draw people in, right? We should be pulling people in towards the love of Christ, not pushing them towards the love of Christ, but we ought to be in the love of Christ, pulling them toward it, compelling people. Allowing people to realize the necessity. And the last verse we'll look at. 
24. For I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will join or will enjoy my banquet. The implication here is when I first read this, I thought, of course, because they said they weren't coming. The implication behind this verse is that those who originally refused to come will one day beg to come. The refusers will become petitioners, those that ask, please let me participate in this feast, in this supper. And then a quick note, um, this doesn't mean that the, the Jews, 100% of the Jews are now permanently blocked and rejected from the feast. Romans 11.5 says that there is a remnant of the Jews chosen by grace, Right? Uh, a group that would still, uh, having rejected or, or, or coming out of a place of rejecting the Lord Jesus, would be able to now see my excuses were invalid, this is the truth, and be able to come in and accept that invitation. But by and large, the Jewish nation, having rejected Christ, will die in that rejection of Christ and miss their opportunity to attend the supper freely offered. We won't go over the rest of this chapter. And it's a very insufficient summary, but I'll summarize the last ten verses here with two two thoughts. The cost of following Christ is high. It is a free salvation, but it is a willingness to, to prioritize Christ over everything else in your life. Or at a minimum, to enjoy those things in Christ the way He intended. The cost of following Christ... Is high. It is, a, it is a dramatically changed life. Not that we change the life. The Spirit of God, when we put our faith in Christ, comes in. He does the work in changing us. The cost of Christ, the, what the impact will be on your life is high. But the cost of not following Christ is much higher. To die in our sins, to die with our excuses, stand before God, have our excuses melt away, have our excuses disappear and be permanently cast out of the presence of God is a far higher cost. Another New Testament writer, Paul, would say, to live is Christ, right? Again, uh, being under the Word of God and seeking to live our life in a way that is honoring to Him, that is where humans thrive, right? The field of psychology is just human efforts they don't realize it, but to discover the way God made people tick. Um, th- these different things that people use to, okay, now I don't need God, I have this. In reality, many of them are gifts from God that if enjoyed in the way He explains, will allow us to thrive and honor God and bring more people into that saving love that Christ has offered so that At death, we don't have our excuses that permanently separate us from God. So, believers, we ought not to behave like those who rejected the invitation. If you've put your faith in Christ and you've accepted the Lord Jesus as the sacrificial lamb for your sins... You are, you will be at that supper, you have accepted that. So don't act like you haven't, right? Don't, don't behave in a way, I don't have time for this, I don't have time for that. I'm, you know, I'm there occasionally and I read my Bible now and then. Strive after God. 
act like one who's been invited and accepted the invitation and recognized the value, right? That man found a treasure in a field and he sold everything he had, right? Or at least being willing to put everything else aside for the sake of what we have in Christ. Actually, we'll go back to that one. Non-believers don't treat Jesus cheaply. The perfect Son of God coming down to earth, being beaten, tortured, mocked, nailed to a cross, shedding His blood to pierce through your excuses and gain you eternal salvation. Don't walk away from that. Learn how to enjoy all the good gifts from God. Right? This earthly life is an infinitesimal. Rarely do you get to accurately use the word infinitesimal. But this is an infinitesimal portion of our existence as eternal beings. Okay, It is so small, it doesn't make an actual fraction. So yes, God intends us to, within the confines of how he has designed us, that we can have pleasure and joy in him. Right? That's how a human is able to have genuine joy and peace and comfort is being in Christ. But far more significant than that is the vast eternity to follow where we will get to thrive and live and enjoy Christ and his goodness and his presence. And that is what we have to have our eyes on so that that changes the way we think and act about things on this earth. Believers, observe Christ's constant awareness of his surroundings and the opportunities to share that truth. If we value that truth high enough, then we will look for ways and opportunities to bring people into that truth, to experience it with us. And don't die with excuses. Again, believers, don't waste your life. Don't enjoy your supper invitation and and have no changed life and no behavior. But far more important is those who have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not die without accepting the invitation that God has offered. Recognizing that God gave the life, God made the rules, we broke them, there's nothing we can do about it. We're separated from God. So Jesus came. And if we put faith in His death and His sacrifice, that that relationship is restored and our invitation is accepted, His invitation we accept and get to spend eternity in Christ, operating in Christ, and eternity with Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the illustrations and the pictures you give us in your word. Help those things to reveal reality to us that we would, each one of us in here, would be shaken as we recognize the seriousness and the urgency. Maybe for the first time, Uh, And maybe over and over again, each time we're under the Word of God, we realize more and more and hopefully a little deeper, um, each of us, as I have, as I got to spend so much time in in this passage, Lord, recognizing more deeply um, the urgency and the importance and the love that you offer us. Please, don't let any of us uh, reject that or live in a way that makes little of it. Uh, And especially for those in here that um, perhaps have not seen the the value in committing and dedicating themselves to you, Lord, that you would um, pierce those hearts and, and, and help them to be convicted and to realize what you offer, so free and so pure and so um, 
just, just the way humans ought to be is in Christ. Help them to realize that, to realize the depravity and their, their, their sin and their need for the Savior God. Please don't let any of us um, pass out of here without working on that relationship and, uh, or, or, or starting that relationship with you, Lord Jesus, that uh, everyone would recognize their need for what the Lamb has offered us on the cross of Christ. And be with us as we part, that we would have safe travels to our next destinations until we gather back together again. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.